Morning. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. Oh, this is the best day of the year from a Christian point of view. I mean, you may be having a mediocre day or a terrible day or a great day, but this, objectively, this is the best day of the year. This Easter is the day on which everything turns. It is Bastille Day and Independence Day and Oktoberfest and Carnival and whatever day your nationality celebrates, all bundled into one. This is life-conquering death day. It's the day the revolution began. It's the day the light pierced the darkness. It's a, it's a good day. And I'm really chuffed to be up here and able to speak to you this morning. If Jesus was still dead, right? You, there'll be various people here. You believe different things about Jesus. If Jesus was still dead, then this world, as we know it now, is as good as it gets. Right? You, might, you might be doing well. You might be comfortable in life. That might be okay. But if Jesus is still dead, this world is not going to get materially better than it is now. If Jesus is alive then the world as we see it today is as bad as it will ever get. This is the low point. And there will be a new world that is far, far greater, more beautiful with no sadness or pain or of any kind, no death that is breaking into the middle of the old one. And so in that sense, the, whether Jesus is dead or alive, whether Easter happened is the turning point. It's the, the biggest question. And in fact, in our society and all societies around the world today actually, the, literally, you date yourself from the, the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You write 2017, and you are acknowledging that this man divides history into before and after. Because if Jesus is dead, oh no. If Jesus is alive, oh yes. That's basically the deal. And it's a wonderful privilege to be able to think about that together on a day when you're celebrating that the ding-dong, the witch is dead, and Sauron is defeated, and the ring of power has been thrown into Mount Doom, and Aslan has risen, and Voldemort's killing curse has rebounded upon him and killed himself and not Harry. I'm very sorry if that ruins the ending of an interesting set of books for you otherwise. Death is conquered, and hope is certain, and love wins. That's the day we're in. It's beautiful. It's a day of redemption. It's a day when the bad things are demonstrated to be blown up and defeated from within, and everything sad starts to become untrue. It's a redemption day. And if you have a Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 20, and just looking briefly at John 20. But we've been in a short series at King's over the last few weeks, looking at how Easter changes everything. And we've seen, looked at the crucifixion and the resurrection from several different angles. And we've seen how Jesus is the remover of our shame. And we've seen how he is the conqueror of the darkness and death and evil. And we've seen how he is our substitute. And we're going to wrap it up this morning by looking at Jesus, our Redeemer. The one who rights wrongs. The one who ransoms people from captivity and brings them into freedom. The one who gets the last word. The resurrection is like the moment when Jesus plays judo with death. I've never done judo. You can tell by my upper body strength uh, or apparently that I'm not a judo person. But apparently the thing that you're always trying to do, as I understand it, is to use the opponent's momentum against them. Pacha! And so they come at you and you, they're down there before they know it and you've used their force against them. The resurrection is the day Jesus does that with death and the devil. You come at me with the fullest force you have and you think you've won, but pacha! That's what the resurrection is. It's a moment, the inversion, the great reversal. And uh, there's a girl in, the, in a cafe a, few, a couple of hundred yards from my home where I go quite a lot, and she's got a tattoo on her forearm 
that says, the darkest hour is just before the dawn. And she's not a Christian, as far as I know. I don't think she is. But it's just a nice phrase. It's a nice saying. But the darkest hour is just before the dawn. That's kind of what Jesus says to death and hell on Easter Sunday. Okay, it looks dark now, but light is coming. Don't be afraid, he says to the world. Don't be afraid. More can be mended than you fear. Far more can be mended than you know. So let's read from John 20, beginning at verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Arabic, Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, don't cling to me, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God. Redemption in the scriptures is the thing that happens when a group of people or a person is oppressed or enslaved and then a strong individual, usually a man, lays their resources on the line to liberate the oppressed person out of captivity and into a free existence, into a place of privilege and power or whatever it might be. Okay, that's what happens in redemption in the Bible. It's a, something where the, usually the strong man of the tribe comes in and says, I will put my resources on the line to set you free and bring you into freedom. So that's what the storyline of Ruth. It's about redemption. If you know the book of Ruth, that's what happens there. That's what happens in Hosea. Some of us know that story. That's, the, that's what redemption is. Now, many of us don't know those stories, but we've probably at least heard of the story of the Exodus which is the classic story of redemption in the Bible. It's the story where God is the man who puts his resources on the line in order to rescue a whole people from captivity, oppression, and slavery. It's the classic redemption story. And it has much more in common with Easter than many of us may have realized. And I just want to show you why that's true. Have a look for a minute at how Easter is a redemption moment because it's like the Exodus, the redemption moment par excellence. It's the classic redemption moment in the Bible. And Easter is like a kind of exodus. So the exodus story, if you, Prince of Egypt sort of story, if you've seen the movie or if you've read the Bible, um, Israel, God's people, have been enslaved in Egypt for centuries. They are trapped and they are ashamed and they are enslaved. And a prophet named Moses is raised up and the king, whose name is Pharaoh, tries to kill him at birth, but he escapes. And he and his older brother, Aaron, grow up to confront the king and to warn the king of the destruction that is coming upon the city. The story builds to a climax at Passover, 
which is this weekend, where God brings down judgment on the heads of his enemies, but at the same time provides a substitute, a lamb, killed by the people, so that everybody who has their homes protected by the blood of the lamb gets to go free. The enemy, Pharaoh and his armies, gives chase for three days. That's a three days journey, and at one point it looks like they've won. But as night falls, God throws his enemy into the deep and brings his people out into freedom. And early in the morning, as dawn breaks, God's people see, as they wake up, their oppressors destroyed, and they celebrate that God has taken away their shame and provided a substitute for them and conquered their enemies. Those three things. Miriam is there, we're told. She is the woman we hear about. And she is there with the women that morning and she sees the victory as well and she takes up her tambourine and the women begin to celebrate and they say, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty we're free at last. Which admittedly is Martin Luther King and not Miriam but it captures the sense of what she was saying, I think. The darkest hour is just before the dawn. Redemption is here. Far more can be mended than we know. That's, that's the song of Miriam, effectively, that morning. And that's the Exodus story. That's the libera- liberation story. And that is exactly, almost to the letter, that is exactly what happens at Easter. Right? Track it through. People, human beings like you and me and our ancestors have been trapped in sin and death and evil and the cycle that they produce for centuries. We are trapped, ashamed, and enslaved. A prophet, whose name is Jesus, not Moses, is raised up, and the king, Herod, tries to kill him at birth, but he escapes. And he and his older cousin, whose name is John, go to confront the king, and they begin to warn of the destruction that will come upon the city if the people do not repent. The story builds to a climactic moment at Passover, this weekend, when God brings down judgment on the heads of his enemies, but provides a substitute, a lamb, killed by the people, so that all who are protected by his blood get to go free. And they run. The enemy gives chase for three days. I don't know if you've ever seen this, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The enemy gives chase for three days, and at one point it looks as if they've won. But as night falls, God throws his enemy into the deep and brings freedom to his oppressed people. And early in the morning, as dawn breaks, God's people see that their oppressors have been destroyed and they celebrate together that God has taken away their shame and provided a substitute for them and conquered the darkness and death itself. And there's a woman there. And in her language, her name is Mariam. Now we call her Mary now. Mary Magdalene, but Mary of Magdala, but she would, in her own language, she's called Mariam. It's the same name as Miriam. And she's standing, if you like, on the banks, and she looks out and sees this victory, and she's standing there with the women as the sun rises, and she begins to celebrate. Sing to the Lord. He has conquered gloriously. He's thrown the horse and his rider into the sea. Free at last. We're free at last. Thank God Almighty. We're free at last. The darkest hour is just before the dawn. Redemption has come. Far more can be mended than you know. It's the same story. It's the same story told beautifully so that you get it. So that again and again as we see this theme in the Bible, we think 
This is a redemption moment. This is a moment when God crushes his enemies and provides a substitute and takes away our shame all at once and everything sad comes untrue. That's what redemption is. Far more can be mended than you know. It's the turning point of all history. It really is. Nothing this world-changing or significant has ever happened anywhere. As far as I'm aware, I don't think anyone's even claimed that anything this significant has ever happened. I don't, I'm not just saying, oh, I'm a Christian, I believe in it, therefore it's important. I don't think anybody's ever made a claim that something this significant's ever happened, other than Christians. And yet, only one person was there to hear that voice saying that word from the new world. That's the first word spoken from the new resurrected world that's now breaking into the old one. One person's there to hear it. Mary. Everybody else is gone. No one else is there. There's no politicians there. There's no influencers there. The movers and the shakers are not there. There's no journalists there. They don't want Jesus to be alive. None of the male disciples or even the women who had gone to the tomb are still there. There's just one broken woman, Mary of Magdala, who is still weeping because she can't get over it. The politicians and influencers weren't there because they didn't care. And they didn't think Jesus was going to come back to life again, and they kind of hoped he didn't. It's just this wonderful comment about, I read recently about how the funniest verse in the Bible is the verse in Matthew 27 when uh, Pilate says to the guards, go, go to the tomb and make it as secure as you can. And this guy I know just wrote, yeah, good luck with that. It was like, how secure can you make a tomb if Jesus is going to break the power of death that morning? That's an unfortunate day to be on guard. But, there's, but actually, they didn't want him to be alive. They, they, didn't, they didn't really care. They didn't think it was going to happen. They were not there in expectation. So they're not there. They didn't need Jesus to be alive. Actually, the disciples, it would seem, were gutted. They were heartbroken, but they kind of got over it. They went, oh, yeah, okay, fine, all right. Well, I really hoped that he was the one. But he's not, obviously. So back to the boats. But Mary had nowhere else to go. She's got nothing else. She's got no hope. If he's still dead, she's got no hope. She is a broken woman who we know was demonized and oppressed and she came to Jesus and he delivered her. She may or may not have had this sort of sexually promiscuous background that tradition has given her. Even if she wasn't, she was a broken woman. And she's there, still there, and everyone else has gone because she's thinking... If he's still dead, then everything has fallen apart. She's not still there because she thinks he's about to rise again. We know that because she talks to the, she talks to the person who it actually turns out is Jesus and said, if you've taken him away, can you tell me where? She doesn't think he's alive. She thinks he's dead. She just can't go on because if he's dead, her world has fallen in. So she's still weeping. And we hear that word again and again in this bit of the story. Weeping, weeping. Why are you weeping? I cannot go on if he's still dead. All hope has died with him. He restored me. He gave me meaning and beauty and hope and forgiveness. And if he's dead, then nothing is worth living for. And all I can do is stand here on the edge of the tomb and cry about it. Friends, it's people that desperate that see the resurrection for what it is. It's desperate people. Comfortable people go back and say, all right, didn't work out. Back to the boats. That's a challenge for some of us. Some of us hear the Easter story and we think, oh, this sounds nice, but if it's not true, it wouldn't be the end of the world. You know the people who hear the voice, Mary? They're the people who say, if this isn't true, it would be the end of the world. All hope, 
of redemption, all hope of a future that's better than the past, all hope of evil and death being hoovered up and destroyed rests on this man being alive, and if he isn't, then I'm giving up. It's what Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching's useless and so is your faith. Mary is hanging in there with that desperation. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus and his blood and his righteousness. And I don't dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. If he's dead, I give up. Easter changes everything for the desperate. Changes everything for people like her, for people like me. I got to that point. I need this to be true. And then I did a lot of study and I found out it is true. But I need, I'm, it, Easter doesn't change things for people who say, oh, take it or leave it. Easter changes things for people who say, Do you know, if he's dead, there is no hope for the world to get better. But if he's alive, there is no danger that the world will, get, will, will not get better. This is hope, redemption, concentrated in this one man. And that's an encouragement because if, like her and like me, you stake your hope on this moment, then Easter changes everything. Resurrection Day becomes Redemption Day. Far more, far more, friends, can be mended than you know. I want to spend my last few minutes reading from, it's quite a long reading, from a chapter called Yeshua by Francis Spufford. Yeshua is um, Jesus' name in the language that Jesus spoke. Um, we, we say Jesus now because we're sort of influenced by Greek and Latin, but they would have called him Yeshua. And I'm trusting that this telling of the story and the redemption moment Mary ultimately experienced will help you see the story in a, in a fresh way. Thursday evening, Yeshua and his friends are celebrating the festival in a borrowed upstairs room. His mood is strange and they keep looking at him perturbed as they eat the roast lamb and yeastless bread with bitter herbs and share the cup of wine and tell the story about how the one God long ago brought his people out of captivity. He doesn't seem like a person whose plans have failed. He's not confused or despondent at all, but he's full of trembling intensity. Everything he says seems deliberate and effortful, as if this dinner in lieu of a revolution were part of something terrifying he was making himself do, step by step, word by word, action by action. After supper, he does something that isn't in the festival ritual. He picks up one of the flat loaves they haven't touched yet. This is my body, he says, and he snaps it in half using both hands. He asks for the wine cup. This is my blood, he says. Do this when you remember me. It's one of those likeness things again, but the friends don't think too hard about what it means because they're bursting out with anxiety at the finality of the way he's talking. Remember you? Remember you? Where are you going? We won't leave you. Don't worry about today. It doesn't matter. We won't leave you, teacher. But they do. A few hours later in the dark on the open ground at the edge of the city where they're camped out, a patrol of temple guards find them. And the friends, looking to Yeshua for guidance and getting none, hesitate, waver, and run for it, leaving him alone in custody. For the rest of that night, he gets frog-marched from place to place, a quick convocation of the temple's law court at the chief priest's house, and then onwards to an equally quick interview with the yawning governor called from his bed to confirm that the empire's civil arm agrees with the temple. This haste not indicating that Yeshua's a particularly urgent or important case, but precisely that the city's two authorities want to keep it minimized, with this minor northern rabbi who's made a nuisance of himself briskly disposed of before daylight. He isn't especially maltreated. He isn't singled out for particular cruelties. Just the ordinarily bad things that happen to prisoners happen to him, that's all. 
He gets punched a few times to keep him moving and worked over a bit to encourage contrition and cooperation. Maybe he loses some skin, some teeth, has some cracked ribs, gets his nose broken. But it's routine. It's perfunctory. It isn't the inventive horrors of a torturer really going to town. It's just a consequence of his new position as an object, a still-living being, which is pretty much a thing when power acts on it. This body's already beyond human consideration. It need not be treated gently or with an eye to its future because it has no future. The whole process is marking it out for death. The only oddity is Yeshua, who talked so eloquently, who shadowboxed with words so deftly on occasion, refuses entirely to defend himself. All night long, he just echoes back the accusations. You threaten the temple. You say so, says Yeshua. You're a blasphemer, a Sabbath breaker. You say so. You're an enemy of the law. You think you can forgive sins. You say so. You claim to be king. You say so. You're a minister of public order. You say so. All night long, a human mirror wall reflecting back what's in front of it, except that all the while he inclines his bruised head and concentrates on the person speaking to him as if they were the only person in the world. He doesn't need to ask what they want him to do for them because they're telling him the answer all the time. We need you to be guilty. We need you to be the mess that must be removed so that the world can work smoothly. We need you to be the unclean shadow of our righteousness, our good imperial order. We need you to be dirt, disease, shame, humiliation, crime, chaos, darkness, so we can be virtue, certainty, and light. We need you to be in the dirt soon. It's nothing personal. Daylight finds him in procession again, but this time no one could mistake him for a king. He's stumbling along under the weight of his own instrument of execution, a great big wooden thing he can hardly lift with an escort of the empire's soldiers. And the bystanders who've come out of their lodgings where they spent the festival night don't see their hopes or the possibility of their hopes parading by. They see their disappointment. They see their frustration. They see everything in themselves that's too weak or too afraid to confront the strapping paratroopers. And much though they hate the soldiers, they hate him more for his pathetic slide into victimhood. Word of his loose living, his impiety, his pleasure in bad company goes round in whispers. Just look at him. There's something disgusting about him, don't you think? Something that makes you squirm inside. Ugh, something furtive. He's so pale and sickly looking with that dried blood around his mouth. He looks like a paedophile being led away by the police. He looks like something from under a rock as if he doesn't deserve the daylight. He's a blot on the new day. Someone kicks him as he goes past him. Whoops, down he goes, flat on his nose with the cross pinning him like a struggling insect. And let's face it, Yeshua's funny. He's a joke. He's less a messiah, more a patch of something you pick off the pavement. And as he struggles on, he recognizes every roaring, jeering face. He knows our names. He knows our histories. And since as well as being a weak and frightened man, he's also the love that makes the world, he isn't just feeling the anger and spite and self-disgust of this one crowd on one Friday morning in Palestine. He's turning his bruised face toward the whole human crowd, past present and to come and accepting everything we have to throw at him everything we fear we deserve ourselves the doors of his heart like wedged open wide and in rushes the whole pestilential flood the vile and roiling tide of cruelties and failures and secrets let me take that from you he is saying 
Give it to me instead. Let me carry it. I am big enough. I'm wide enough. I'm not what you were told. I'm the father who longs for every one of his lost children. I am the friend who will never leave you. I am the light behind the darkness. I am the shining that your shame cannot extinguish. I'm the ghost of love in the torture chamber. I am change and hope. I am the refining fire. I am the door where you thought it was just a wall. I am what comes after deserving. I am the earth that drinks up the bloodstain. I am gift without cost. I am, I am, I am. Before the foundation of the world, I am. But it is killing him all the same. He never promised you'd be safe if you tried to live without fear. The soldiers lead him out of the city gate and laboriously slipping and sliding with crunching blows from spear butts to motivate him, they drive him up to the small cone of Skull Hill where death sentences are carried out. They tie him onto the cross and plant it upright. It's the empire's punishment for rebellious slaves, slow and nasty by design, devised to be a spectacle of days-long struggle and gasping to passers-by. On a cross, you choke to death, where you're finally too tired to heave your own weight up to take the next breath. Yeshua's cross has a sign on it over his head. Here's your king, it says, in all the languages of the province. The chief priest didn't want it, but the governor has a point to make. And Yeshua hangs there. He twists against the ropes to snatch the precious air which whistles in his flattened nose. He can't do anything deliberate now. The strain of the whole weight on his outstretched arms hurts too much. The pain fills him up, displaces thought, as much for him as for anyone else who's ever been able to struck, stuck to one of those horrible contrivances. And yet he goes on taking in. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. He is all open door to sorrow, suffering, guilt, despair, horror, everything you can't escape. And he doesn't even try to escape it. He turns to meet it and claims it all as his own. This is mine now, he's saying. And he embraces it with all that's left in him, each dark act, each dripping memory, as if it were something precious. As if it were itself the lost child tottering homeward along the road. But there is so much of it. So many injured children, so many locked rooms, so much lonely anger, so many bombs in public places, so much vicious zeal, so many bored teenagers at roadblocks, so many drunk girls at parties someone thought they could have a little fun with, so many jokes that go too far, so much ruining greed, so much sick ingenuity, so much burned skin. The world he claims, claims him. It burns and stings, it splinters and gouges, it locks him round and drags him down. Because this isn't a rich man's offer of something he can easily spare. This is not a supernatural person being temporarily inconvenienced. This is love going where we go, all of us, when we end. Yeshua is long past trying to show what lies beyond the limits of the world. He's traveling into limit now, deeper and deeper. And the limits are tightening on him, tightening down to a ribcage that won't fill as consequences tighten on anyone. There is nothing left to keep him company there but the light he's always felt shining beneath things. But the light is going. He's so deep down now in the geology of woe, so buried beneath the weight of it, that the pressure is squeezing out his feeling for the light. There's nothing left of it but a speck, a pinpoint as the world grinds in on itself, a dot dimming as the strata of the dark are piled heavier and heavier upon it. And then it goes out. Of course it does. Love can't repair death. Death is stronger than love. We all know that. But Yeshua didn't until now. This is the first time in his entire life he's ever felt alone. Now there's no love song. There's no kind father. There is just a man on a cross dying in pain. A foolish man who chose to give up life and breath to be a carcass on a pole. 
The yellow walls of the city blur with Yeshua's tears and he opens his mouth and he howls the news, new only to him, that we are abandoned in a dark place where help never comes. The friends creep out at dusk and ask for the body, promising anonymous burial and no fuss. They're allowed to carry it away, wrapped in a tube of linen that slowly stains from inside. Skull Hill sees lots of cortejas like this. There's only time to stick what's left of Yeshua hastily in a rock tomb by the highway. Washing the corpse properly and laying it out will have to wait. The Holy Saturday is coming and no one wants any confrontation. All day long, the next day, the city is quiet. The air above the city lacks the usual thousand little trails from cook fires. Hymns rise from the temple. Families are indoors. The soldiers are back in barracks. The chief priest grows hoarse with singing. The governor plays chess with his secretary and dictates letters. The free bread the temple distributed to the poor has gone stale by midday, but it tastes all right, dipped in water or broth. Death has interrupted life only as much as it ever does. We die one at a time and we disappear. But the life of the living continues. The earth turns. The sun makes its way towards the western horizon no slower or faster than it usually does. Early Sunday morning, one of the friends comes back with rags and a jug of water and a box of the grave spices that are supposed to cut down on the smell. She's braced for the task. But when she comes to the grave, she finds that the linen's been thrown into the corner and the body is gone. Evidently, anonymous burial isn't quite anonymous enough after all. She sits outside in the sun. The insects have woken up here at the edge of the desert and a bee is nosing about in a lily like silk thinly tucked over itself, but much more perishable. It won't last long. She takes no notice of the feet that appear at the edge of her vision. That's enough now, she thinks. That's more than enough. Don't be afraid, says Yeshua. Far more can be mended than you know. It's the day of redemption. It's the day when the sad things become untrue. It's the day when hope wins. It's the day on which the world turns. All the things about this world that we hate will be gone. All of the things about this world that we love will be preserved and multiplied because Jesus has conquered the grave, because redemption is here, because hope wins, because the darkest hour is just before the dawn, because far more can be mended than you possibly know or think. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Jesus, we thank you so much for this astonishing thing you did and person you are. We thank you for becoming like us and absorbing the full consequences of all our evil and all our shame. Thank you for being our substitute and our shame remover and our conqueror. Thank you that you led us on an exodus journey out of slavery into freedom. And thank you that because you did, we have certain hope like Mary and like I've found and like many in this room have found that far more can be mended than you possibly their dream could be possible. We are so thankful that you have done all that is needed and that your life has conquered death. We thank you for Easter. We thank you for the resurrection. Oh, on Christ, the solid rock we stand and all other ground, all of it is sinking sand. We are so grateful for the resurrection of Jesus. It makes all the difference. Amen. Amen. Amen.